Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another Brew Theology podcast. This is Ryan Miller, and today's episode, we have the honor and privilege of speaking with Dr. Craig Blomberg, Distinguished New Testament Professor at Denver Seminary. Craig is the author of 15 books. He has co-authored and co-edited 10 more, and he's written 150 journal articles. In the academic world, according to the words of anchorman Ron Burgundy, Craig is kind of a big deal. I took classes with Craig back at Denver Seminary 15 plus years ago. Craig challenged me then, and he continues to challenge me now. We had Craig at Grandma's House Brewery in Denver with 50 people here in our community, and Craig spoke with them, and we did a Q&R, and what you're going to hear now is a microcosm of that. We had him back on the podcast with about four friends, and we are drinking Stranahan's Whiskey Barreled Stout Homebrew. That's right. It's a homebrew from Craig Brook. Craig Brook is a pastor friend of mine of the Table Ministry here in Denver, so thank you, Craig, for the beer. Thank you, Dr. Craig Blomberg, for your time with us. If you like this episode and you're on the other end right now listening, and if you've listened to this whole thing, you go, man, that was good. I like these Brew Theology guys. They're pretty fantastic. Hey, go on iTunes. We would love it if you would go on iTunes, rate us, review us, and share that online. Twitter. That's right. We're at Twitter, Brew underscore Theology. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at Brew Theology. Make sure you check out the website, brewtheology.org. If you want to be a partner, if you want to start a Brew Theology, or you would like to be a sponsor or be a monthly contributor, please go online, fill something out. You can email me, ryan at brewtheology.org. You can also email Janelle at brewtheology.org. All right, friends, we will see you on the other side of this episode. Oh, wait, 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 time out. Before I continue, before I continue, I have a very important announcement to make. Here it comes. Theology Beer Camp, as you know, is coming to Denver, Colorado. The dates are August 18th and 19th. Brew Theology is hosting Homebrew Christianity's Trip Fuller and Peter Rollins on August 18th and 19th. So if you go to theologybeercamp.com, that's theologybeercamp.com, and you'll see that the tickets are on sale March 15th and onward. And we would love to have you in the Mile High City. And I would love to show you some of the fantastic places where we eat and we drink and we simply do life here in Denver. All right. See you on the other side. Peace. Okay. Welcome back, friends. I'm here today with Craig Brook, Dan Rosado, and we're interviewing Dr. Craig Blomberg from Denver Seminary. Craig, good to have you here tonight. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So for those who know you and for those who don't know you, even those who do know you, they would love to hear your story again. You, uh, you didn't grow up doing theology. You, you grew up as a child like in the Cubs. So let's talk a little bit about your childhood, how you became a theologian, and then when you finally had your first beer, what do you like to drink these days? <laughs> Well, my first beer was some point when I was a kid, and somebody in my family was having it, and of course I wanted to try, and I thought it was disgusting. <laughs> but I grew up in western Illinois. I uh, thought I wanted to uh, do something with math, because that was always my favorite subject in school. Both of my parents were public school teachers, and so... Uh, I was always impressed with the way they got three months in the summer off, although my dad was one of the most creative teachers I ever knew, and he was always working on how he could teach this or that topic better. But he could do it any place he wanted to. Um, and I felt bad for my friends who never got to go on much of a vacation because their dads only got two weeks off work the whole year. But... Uh, Became a Christian in uh, my sophomore year of high school thanks to a campus life club and learned about spiritual gifts and that teaching was one of them and well that sounded good and I seemed to be pretty good at explaining hard math problems to my friends sometimes even when they didn't understand our teachers so I thought my dad's got a good gig as a high school Spanish teacher I'll become a high school math teacher and went off to a uh, 
nominally Lutheran liberal arts college and discovered an approach to the Bible and to uh, religious studies that was completely at odds with what I had learned in campus life and what I was increasingly learning through Campus Crusade for Christ at my college. And um, I found as I was a pretty zealous witness as a a young adult that uh, I was able to come up with answers to a lot of hard questions, not necessarily the first time I was asked them, but then I'd go do some work. And the one thing that kept stymieing me was people, often professors or top students, would say, well, we know that most of what's in the Gospels isn't what the Jesus of history actually said or did. So don't just quote that to me. I didn't have any answers to that. But that put me on what has become a lifelong passion to uh, give good answers. And after a long and distinguished one-year career of teaching high school math, I uh, went to seminary, met and married my wife. We went on to Ph.D. studies, and I've been teaching the New Testament ever since and writing on all kinds of topics, but the one that I just keep coming back to is the reliability of scriptures. Yeah, and last week at the pub, Grandma's House Brewery, you, uh, you you knocked it out of the park. You, I remember having you in, in class thinking, oh, can he handle a brewery? And I feel like you're probably more at home at the brewery than you are in the classroom. Don't tell the Denver Seminary people that. It, it wouldn't maybe... bother anybody these days. Um, <laughs> we've come a long way in my 31 years there. Um, when I first came, uh, you if you drank, you had to find out who were the safe people to uh, tell that to. And when I posted on Facebook uh, a little over a week ago that I was doing this, the former chairman of our board was one of the people who hit like. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Here's my honest confession. I don't think I've said this out loud or to many people, but the first time I started drinking was my first semester at Denver Seminary. Well, I'm, I'm glad so, you figured out how to do it in moderation. So you got me drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was me. No, it wasn't you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, so the topic tonight is the historical reliability of the Gospels, your passion area. It's, it's uh, what you've been doing for many years. So you've given us 12 historical reasons for supporting the general reliability of the Gospels. So we're going to go through each one, but we'll do this conversationally. Uh, but your, your first one here that you have is that you say that we do have reliable copies of the text of what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote. So can you just uh, elaborate a little bit more about that? There's uh, a lot of misunderstanding and uh, what today we call fake news out on the internet and other places. Um, Occasionally uh, even put forward by scholars, but uh, 99.9% of the people in the world who do what's called textual criticism for a living, God bless them. I can't imagine anything more boring than <laughs> sifting through the literally thousands uh, of ancient Greek manuscripts we have for parts of the New Testament, and it's into the tens of thousands if you include translations into other ancient languages. And noting where they differ. Um, I don't think anybody's ever been able to count uh, an accurate total, but estimates sometimes, maybe it's a bit inflated, come in the range of 400,000 variants. And if you stop the conversation at that point, somebody who's not stopping to think what follow-up questions should I ask is going to say, well, how could you possibly know what was originally written? And then you do a little math and you divide that 400,000 by the 25,000 ancient texts that those are distributed among, and you're down to about 16 per copy, uniquely. 
And then you have to ask what kinds of variants, and the vast majority of them are spelling differences that have nothing whatsoever to do with the meaning of any word. And another whole raft of them have to do with the word order that doesn't change the meaning, or whether you have a, an a or a the, an article or an and, um, or conjunction of some kind. There probably are about 400 that really make uh, a modestly interesting difference uh, in the meaning of a verse someplace, and anybody that owns a modern English translation of the Bible can find them in their footnotes. The important thing to say is that not a single doctrine or ethical position of the Christian faith hinges on any disputed text. Uh, the next point says that the authors were in a position to report accurate historical information. It's true. Can you talk about <laughs> a little bit, you know, one of the things that I've heard um, from both believers and non-believers, um, or maybe believers of other faiths, is is the fact that there, you know, weren't any eyewitnesses that contributed to the writings. Could Could you speak a little more about that? Well, there were. Um, two of the four Gospels are said to have been written by Matthew and John, who were among Jesus' 12 closest followers. And Mark, who was not one of the 12 so-called disciples, uh, the early church documented in a number of places in 2nd century writings, got his information from Peter, who was the, the ringleader of the 12, and uh, Luke uh, was a companion of the Apostle Paul. So uh, the historic Christian claim is that uh, you have uh, uh, eyewitness sources right from the beginning. Now, it's true that in uh, modern scholarship, every one of those claims has been disputed for a, a whole variety of reasons. But even by those who dispute them, they would quickly acknowledge that the reason for those names coming into uh, the New Testament was because, so the, the belief goes, uh, they were close disciples, followers, friends, um, companions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're only taking things at most one further step removed from eyewitness testimony. And when you consider how rarely in the ancient world um, history, biography, comes within four or five hundred years of the people being talked about, uh, we're in a remarkably good position with the New Testament. So you sort of alluded to uh, the next point that you make there, but the the gap between eyewitnessing and then actually recording it, and you know today we we have Facebook Live, so we can see stuff happening as it goes, and so people that live in that culture um, are are questioning the reliability of it because of that gap that took place. So can you talk about that as a is how reliable is it really when there's a couple of generations potentially? Yeah, we have uh, scholarly disagreement, what else is new, um, between uh, more conservative scholars who would date uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke to the 60s, the first century, and John usually to the 90s, and more liberal scholars who would often put Mark in the 70s, Matthew and Luke in the 80s, and actually agree in most cases that John was probably in the 90s. And the most probable year for Jesus' crucifixion and death was uh, A.D. 30. So you are looking at uh, one generation gap to uh, the earliest Gospels and uh, potentially two uh, for the second. But again, we have to uh, compare apples with apples. Uh, the ancient cultures of the Near East, the Middle East, the Mediterranean world were oral cultures. Uh, most people didn't know how to read or write. Um, 
that didn't mean they were dumb. The range of IQs is probably identical to any other point in history. It just meant that uh, the way their cultures had come to uh, preserve information was by word of mouth. And when you read about the abilities uh, of people to learn and memorize and recite uh, huge texts, uh, 100,000 words or more, um, you begin to wonder, maybe we're the ones who are dumb. <laughs> um, and that's not true either. <laughs> but uh, it's just a, a, different, uh, a different way of preserving information. So again, uh, I like to use the example of the most complete lives of Alexander the Great, who died in 323 BC, that we have preserved, who referred, as Luke did in the Gospels, to having used earlier sources. But the oldest existing uh, biographies are dated from the end of the first to the early second century by two men uh, named Arian and Plutarch. So you have more than 400 years between their writings and the events they narrate. And yet those who write world civilization textbooks don't bat an eye about accepting at face value the information that uh, Arian and Plutarch agree on. All right, so at the pub you talked about how that the cause requires you to tell it right and preserving historical accuracy of the text. And then you have scholars who would disagree with, while we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, John's Gospel written later is different. You have the historical Jesus, and then some make the distinction between the historical and the canonical Jesus uh, being um, that the, the certainty of the story back in the first century wasn't as important, some would say, as it is today. So today you have... We want to get the facts right. We want to get the stories right. But then the argument on the other side would say it doesn't really matter if it was historically true or not. So, but, but you, you would say that it is important, and it was important. Well, you've lumped about three different issues together there. I do that. Um, <laughs> we could go. It is true that uh, John is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and because I am not in, in this setting trying to defend every last word um, in the Gospels. I'm, I'm wearing my ancient historian's hat, not my Christian believer's hat. Uh, most of, of what we're talking about is much more clearly uh, demonstrable from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, from the Synoptic Gospels. Where you started your question and sounded like you were going was uh, that theologians or anybody who is passionately committed to an ideology, whether it's religious or political or social or whatever, uh, can very easily um, to try to enhance their case and their cause uh, skew the facts. Um, has anybody paid attention to the political world in the last few years? Um, is there anybody not skewing the facts these days? But there are also other times when the very cause that someone is committed to makes it important for them to do their best to not wildly distort uh, what they determine happened in history. And the, the classic example that's just slightly older than my lifetime is uh, the aftermath of World War II and the Nazi Holocaust. And uh, I have met elderly Jewish Holocaust survivors, and uh, they know and have known uh, some of the Jewish historians who were passionately committed no, no hint of objectivity in sight. They were passionately committed to ensuring, if at all possible, that such atrocities never again happened to their people. And yet they were the ones 
who very carefully, meticulously chronicled the lives and deaths of as many of those six million Jews as they could. Um, it's people not committed to the Jewish cause who are the ones from time to time who make outrageous revisionist statements like it never happened or never happened at all on the scale that, that, that people claim. Yeah. And I've been to Qumran, and I'm, I'm sure you have too. I mean, I know you've taken groups there many times. And from what I understand, at least from the Essenes, the library of scrolls that has uh, been studied for years now, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but how these, uh, these people who were so devoted to the text would have the mikvah there, the baptismals, and before they would write one letter, they would immerse themselves in, they would get out, and they would have three people around them, and one person would say, the person in the middle who was writing, copying the text, would say, it's a yod, and the other person would have to say, it's a yod, and the third person, it's a yod. So they'd all agree, then they go in the baptismal after every yod, hey, vav, whatever it was. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. It's a beautiful story, but to me, when I, when I was in Qumran, this, this does make sense. Like, their story, their cause, and that was, a, that was an important cause to people that live there. To pass that on to the next generation clearly was a priority. We know that they engaged in uh, baths of, of ritual purity on a daily basis. I doubt that the story about doing it after every letter is true or they never would have written anything. <laughs> um, but it's a great story. <laughs> and so uh, just as we want to try to debunk urban legends that uh, make Christianity look uh, bad, we don't want to uh, jump at stories that uh, might make things look good but be found out not to be true. But your main point is sure. well taken. Um, there were multiple scribes, there were multiple checks and balances, oral and written, um, visual and audio, and uh, it wasn't just at Qumran. This was the, the ancient culture. It wasn't just in Judaism. Uh, Greco-Roman schoolboys, uh, mostly boys in those days, um, at times committed to memory the Iliad and the Odyssey, the shorter of which is about 100,000 words. That's more than five times the length of the longest gospel. So uh, without all the modern distractions of things to do, without a print-based culture, even if that print is now increasingly in digital form. Um, people learned, and they recited, and they put to music, and they put to rhythm. Um, I mentioned last week a uh, true story, and uh, I have my two grown daughters' permission to tell it, <laughs> that when they were in junior high and high school, respectively, I don't know how many hundred, if not thousands of times. And it wasn't that we didn't have a good CD collection. <laughs> we heard Man of La Mancha, Phantom of the Opera, Les Mis, and a collected works of Veggie Tales, played over and over and over and over again. And there was a time when our two girls could recite and or sing from memory all of that. And they never once sat down intentionally to try to memorize it. That was in maybe a period of three to four years. Imagine having your parents start by teaching you things at age two or three so that the first words you're saying after Ima and Abba for mommy and daddy are probably scriptural. And you do that throughout life. You remember stuff and you have cultivated the ability to remember stuff when you want to. So a lot of times when I hear about the oral tradition, you know, we in our kind of Western 21st, 20th century uh, experience, we can't help but think of that telephone game. Mm, yeah. um, you know, can you speak a little bit about the differences between you know, our uh, deprived oral traditions <laughs> and, and the oral traditions of, of the ancient Near East. That's right. If, if you uh, 
wind up, whether as a child or an adult, suddenly being asked to play the game telephone, where uh, maybe you only have a room of a dozen people, but you quietly whisper uh, a few sentences that aren't uh, the easiest to remember. Maybe you have a few tongue twisters in them. And you whisper them so no one else hears. And then you ask the person you've whispered it to to repeat what he or she thinks they've heard to the next person equally privately and quietly. And you do that. You don't need too long of a chain to then stop the process and ask the last person to say what he or she remembers hearing or thinks they heard. And there will be enough things that have gotten garbled that there's usually something pretty funny that comes out. Um, there probably is no poorer and less relevant an analogy for the ancient oral tradition that anyone could ever invent than that. Because nobody was whispering, nobody was doing it privately, these were people who were authorized transmitters of what was believed to be cherished, if not even sacred tradition, reciting publicly with gatherings that included others who were of like mind, even if they were trying to persuade audiences that included people of all different perspectives. And it was those others' right and responsibility to interrupt and correct if they believed the speaker was telling the message the wrong way at any point. Um, on top of that, there is the wonderful story that Ken Bailey, uh, now well into retirement in the Chicago area, but for most of his adult life, taught at uh, the Near East School of Theology in Beirut, Lebanon, and then later at uh, Tantur Institute outside of Jerusalem. On numerous occasions, he tried replicating the game of telephone with Middle Easterners uh, raised in traditional oral cultures, which are getting harder and harder to find as technology sweeps the world. But back in the 60s and 70s, when he started um, his ministry there, uh, he could find those people. And he reports that in every case, the first thing that happened was a sort of blank stares, like, what's the point of this exercise? <laughs> but they humored him, and they did it. And at the end of the day, they had the message fine, and there wasn't any garbling. Um, so when Bart Ehrman or others uh, say it's like the ancient child's game of telephone, that's one of the world's biggest anachronisms, uh, almost as bad as saying uh, the ancient Jews had spaceships. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just I feel like in in our Western world we are so privatized and individualized. Oh my! And so we, re, you know, even quiet times, and they're great for some people if that's yeah. how they connect with God. But the idea of a quiet time, even in the you know first century, would have been wouldn't have been the the normal setting. It was all you were saying. It was all public. Scripture was read out loud. That's right. Prayers were out loud. So, and I, I do appreciate that because I think that often people who want to talk about the telephone issue, it's like no, that wouldn't have been an issue back right. then. So no, thanks for that. I, I, I uh, still remember um, back in college having uh, Acts 17.11 quoted repeatedly about how the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians when they heard Paul's message. For they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Speaking about the uh, Jews who had not yet accepted Jesus as Messiah. And um, this was the most common proof text for why Christians should have a, a daily quiet time. Well, if you want a text for that, go back to the Psalms. Go back to <laughs> Psalm 119, where every stanza talks about meditating on the law. But 
what Jews did was they paired up in a kind of like a high school speech and debate format and somebody argued one side and somebody argued the other and then they might reverse roles or go off with another partner but searching the scriptures daily was almost certainly done in public out loud and with the animated yes. discussions that I love it led to that proverb that where there are two Jews there are three views <laughs> yes so, and that's my, this is my favorite argument or the the point I love that it's so good yeah and it's funny I just when when I first heard you talk about these points at, at the pub I didn't think of this but I just remembered like you know we have the story of Jesus reading the Isaiah scroll and when he reads it wrong because he stopped about the part of you know the day of the judgment of the Lord destroying the Jews or whatever, or the Gentiles, sorry. Um, they go and want to, to kill him, not only because it's potentially a claim of Messiah, but he misquoted scripture. Well, and he, he didn't even misquote it. He just stopped mid-verse, mid-sentence, <laughs> and conveniently ignored the the part about judgment on the Gentiles, and then began to uh, talk about other Old Testament incidents when <laughs> Elijah was sent to a Gentile woman and not to anybody in Israel, or Elisha was sent to Naaman the Syrian. And you're right, this this infuriated them. So uh, you don't you don't even have to misquote Scripture to get people upset with you. You just, just have stop. to selectively quote it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, oh, so... We could really go in a right. Christians complaining about picking and choosing scripture, but uh, well, that would be another podcast. <laughs> That's another podcast. <laughs> we need to do that someday. It'd be fun. But that that gets to another one of the points on that you raised last week, and the sort of the so-called missing topics, right? So I'm I'm jumping around a little bit sure. in the order here, but um, you know, so some some people would argue that, um, you know. How how Jesus has been represented in the Gospels um, isn't historically accurate because he doesn't talk about some of the major uh, beliefs of the day, like um, circumcision, which was important then, and he doesn't talk about it. Um, or, like you said, speaking in tongues. Like, can you just talk about some of the historical reliability around those well, what, missing what, things? What you often get are people saying... Um, a large percentage, especially of the sayings, the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, um, were invented by his followers a generation later um, in order to address controversies and issues that became crucial after Jesus' life. And sometimes it's couched in the language of first Christians believed that the risen Lord spoke to them through the Holy Spirit, and therefore to write in a document that Jesus said such and such was not duplicitous. It, it might just have been they believed that Jesus was speaking through the Spirit to them, and therefore they are recording what Jesus said and not separating off those teachings from other things that uh, they knew Jesus did say while he was alive. Where issues like circumcision or speaking in tongues come in is because these were hugely controversial and volatile issues for the first generation of Christians. And if they were used to seeking what they believed God was teaching them in the moment and then saying Jesus said and putting it in a written record, surely they would have done it for those kind of issues. Acts 15 describes a, if you want to use the word a bit anachronistically, first ecumenical council of bringing all kinds of people of different perspectives together to hash out, does a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, in a world where only Jews were circumcised, have to keep the law to become a follower of Jesus? Well, a lot of them didn't mind most of the laws, but an adult Gentile male in a world without anesthesia... <laughs> 
beyond uh, a strong dose of opium, um, this was a big issue. <laughs> if ever you would expect there to be a saying in the Gospels that says, here is the Lord's opinion on this topic, if they felt the slightest freedom to just invent and make up stuff that Jesus never talked about, there it is. And there's not a word in the Gospels on the topic. And the same is true with, with speaking in tongues, which wasn't as universal an issue, but if you read 1 Corinthians, it, it threatened to tear the church of Corinth wide open. wonder what Jesus taught about it. We're still wondering. <laughs> so as a follow-up to that, I've, I've heard it say that some, some people would argue that if Jesus didn't address it, that he would have agreed with sort of the majority opinion of, of folks of his times, particularly the Jewish perspective on things. And How would you respond to that? Jesus agreed with a lot of things Jewish. He also disagreed with a lot of conventional interpretations of Judaism. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount, the second half of Matthew 5 has six consecutive times when Jesus says, you've heard it said of old, and then a certain law is quoted, and then he says, but I say to you, and he puts a very different spin on things than most of the Jewish teachers of his day were. So I think the, the best generalization we can make about Jesus is that he was unpredictable. <laughs> um, he might have been conventional, he might not have been. Very hard to know. You, you say this gives credence to this reliability of the Gospels, how we talked about the missing sayings, but the things that are, are there, leaving your, you know, your father and your mother, picking up your cross, follow me. How, how are these what we would call embarrassing sayings? Some, some would say embarrassing. Some would say, right. why would you put them in there? And, and why do you think that's part of the reliability? Again, historians uh, more broadly than... Uh, just religious historians will use what is sometimes called the criterion of embarrassment. If uh, you have uh, an ancient document representing the perspective of a movement or an individual, a philosopher, a religious teacher, and you can build up a, a general sense of what that movement or person stood for, and then you find scattered about positions that just seem very awkward <laughs> to harmonize with the main teachings of that person. Not impossible to deal with, because if they're impossible to deal with, then you just have a flat-out contradiction. But uh, if as in the case of Jesus, the first generations of Christian following very rapidly exalted him, magnified him, uh, spoke of him in language explicit and implicit as deity, and then tucked in the middle of that you have, oh, and by the way, here's something he didn't know. And here's something he couldn't do. Well, Theologians can and have answered that with the idea that God incarnate voluntarily limited his use of these divine attributes. But why not just omit a teaching like Luke 14.26, whoever does not hate father and mother, brothers and sisters, cannot be my disciple. Oh, and I, I know, I study that hate in the ancient languages sometimes just means uh, prefer a lot less. But if I felt at all free to just uh, drop out something because it's inconvenient, I think I would have dropped that out in a world where most Jews and Greeks and Romans alike focused on their family even more than uh, an organization in the 21st century with that name. Yeah. Focus on the family. 
<laughs> I got it. I was, I was trying to hold back. <laughs> that was for our it's listening audience. Dan's stomping grounds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I there's a lot that I haven't thought about, and and even even things like his very closest disciples that he dedicated all this time to, all of them leaving after his death, like kind of like cowards, including that in the text. Guys like Peter, you know, who end up later in that Jerusalem council, right? Um, that's something that I wouldn't want in there about myself if I was Peter, <laughs> that's for sure. If you study the sacred scriptures of the major world religions... Judaism wins the prize in their scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament, of including the greatest percentage of personally and corporately and ethnically embarrassing information about their history, about how often they rebelled against God and didn't get it, and Christians get the silver medal for a close runner-up in second place. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about that. Too. I mean, you have something like the Proverbs, very optimistic, very formulaic, and then you have Ecclesiastic. Yeah, Ecclesiastes is, you know, everything's vapor, almost like everything's meaningless, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and you have to juxtaposition these and, and wrestle with the text. It's, mm -hmm. it's fascinating. Absolutely. So, I mean, you spent a lot of time, like, with the texts themselves. Um, is, there, is there anything contemporary outside of the, the, the canon that would support the historicity of the Gospels as it relates to Jesus? Well, it depends on how you define contemporary. Today, with our uh, fast-paced lifestyles and ability to transmit information instantaneously, Contemporary sometimes means at the exact same time as. And it doesn't take much Google searching to find websites that list a dozen authors that we know about from the first century, um, Greek or Roman, who say not a word about Jesus. Of course, it's worth asking what did they write about? I've seen those lists. I've looked up the names. It includes a botanist, includes a geographer. It does include some religious and philosophical types of people like Philo, but he lived in Alexandria in Egypt and died in 50 and finished writing in the 40s. And we don't even know if Christianity had spread. To Alexandria by that time. And if it had, if it was very widely known. So to ask for contemporary sources, meaning during Jesus' lifetime, well, it's kind of like I've I've heard people lampoon King George III of England. Because on the day the Revolutionary War began. He wrote in his log, nothing of significance happened today. <laughs> well, of course that's what he said. It was a couple weeks later before he even heard about the Revolutionary War. Um, if you want to lampoon him, find out what he put in his diary after he heard about it. <laughs> um, and so once you get to the second half of the, sec of the first century... Once you get into the second century, which is when we actually have still existing Greek and Roman historians, yes, there are more than a dozen sources that refer to Jesus. And this notion that there are no non-Christian sources to, to back up the life and, and, and existence of Jesus is just a bald-faced lie. Or ignorance. Um, what you get if you put all of that composite testimony together is that there was such a person, Jesus, a Jew who lived in the first third of the first century, who was born out of wedlock, 
whose ministry intersected with that of a man named John who baptized people, calling on them to repent from their sin. He had a brother named James. As an adult, he had a public ministry in which he called disciples. Five of them are named. He regularly promoted interpretations of the law that fell afoul of the Jewish authorities, which eventually led to his arrest and crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, which enables us to narrow things down to a single decade during which Pilate reigned between 26 and 36 AD, and that despite that gruesome conviction, uh, 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 crucifixion, that, that execution reserved for criminals and slaves, his followers believed they saw him rose from the dead, that he was the Messiah, the liberator, and they began meeting and singing hymns to him as if he were a god. That's about the sum total of what we can say from those non-Christian sources. But it's certainly more than adequate to debunk the notion that there wasn't such a person uh, or that the basic facts about him in the Gospels are untrue. Now, from our perspective, we could say, well, why isn't there a whole lot more? And I think to answer that, we have to understand that ancient historians and biographers didn't write about the lives of ordinary people. And you say, well, Jesus wasn't ordinary. Well, he wasn't the kind of person people wrote about in a world where you wrote about kings and queens, rich people, because it was mostly rich people who could afford to buy books and read them, official and officially credentialed people in positions of religious or philosophical leadership, and... Um, the aristocratic, the nobility, military generals and their exploits. Jesus fits none of those categories. And on top of that, who in the first two or three centuries of Christian history had any reason to think that someday his followers would be the largest religion on the planet? It's really about what you should expect to find about Jesus. And on top of that, Christian testimony, even after the Gospels, adds a whole lot more. And you say, yeah, but they're Christian. That disqualifies them. Well, how did they become Christian? Most of these were first-generation converts, convinced by the evidence so you're saying the moment somebody is convinced by evidence for a position, their testimony is no longer legitimate? Nobody would do that in any other walk of life. Don't teach me about quantum physics unless you're still a believer in Newtonian mechanics. Nobody would get hired for a university position like that. Don't teach me geography unless you're a member of the Flat Earth Society because you might be biased in favor of a round earth. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop. Flat earthers are making a comeback. <laughs> That's how it was. Yeah. So there, there was so much in what you just said. I kind of want to stop it right there. But I, I do, for those who are listening who love archaeology, because you never know, there may be there may be a hundred listeners who like archaeology. Any kind of discoveries, uh, both in the past and even present that are going on right now, that, uh, that can kind of confirm some of the... Um, the details and the circumstances surrounding the life of Jesus. You, on a similar note, I'm curious what the oldest manuscripts, like which gospel do we have the oldest manuscripts or the most complete actually out of the, the four gospels? By the end of the second century, we have nearly complete copies of Matthew, Luke, and John. And in early third century, we have nearly complete copy of Mark. The oldest fragment from the early 2nd century is a fragment of a few verses out of the Gospel of John. In terms of archaeological evidence, uh, large books are published in print that you can consult in any medium. <laughs> 
uh, of uh, the archaeology of the Bible lands, including the life of Jesus, the travels of Paul, um, what archaeology can confirm, which is not a majority of the Bible. How are you going to confirm that somebody said something in a world long before tape recorders? if you're not willing to trust the oldest known testimony that we do have in writing. I mean, what else would count? Um, you kind of have, have drawn the boundaries so narrow that you can't satisfy them. But uh, the locations of the places described, their nature, their size, their cultural makeup, the topography, the lay of the land, how much time it took to go between things, uh, to perform various activities. And then you have the more exciting things, like the uh, discovery of the tomb of Herod the Great or of Caiaphas, the high priest in the time of Jesus. Uh, you have a first century fishing boat that was dredged up after a record drought on the Sea of Galilee back in 1986 and is now available uh, to see in a museum on the, on the shores of the sea there. You have uh, small ossuaries or bone boxes where uh, people's bones were reburied to take up less space in the cemetery after, uh, after their bodies had decayed that still have a piece of ankle bone, a piece of wood, and a nail going through them, which uh, a man named Johannan apparently fell victim of Roman crucifixion, which we discovered in 1968, prior to which there was no known evidence to back up the idea that uh, people were nailed to a cross rather than just affixed by ropes. Um, an inscription that was found saying that Pilate was the prefect of Judea during uh, the time of uh, Tiberius Caesar. Um, they just keep coming. And if Israel wasn't a modern inhabited nation, if we didn't have to worry about whole lots of living people there and could just excavate anything at will, who knows what we'd discover. Um, but... We can't do that. That wouldn't be a good thing to do. <laughs> so, Craig, uh, I appreciate the fact that you've spent this time going through 12 reasons. and We've probably covered all 12 in this conversation. If you have one last word for people out there who are still on the fence of going, I don't know, what would you have to say? Well, if you're counting, I'm sure we've covered more than 12 reasons, but if you're counting according to the 12 I gave uh, a week ago at Grandma's Brewery, Grandma's House Brewery. Um, the last one is, in some ways, the most interesting one, which is Christian testimony, but a very special kind of Christian testimony. Many people may not be aware that, that we can date the letters of Paul pretty precisely. There aren't the debates, conservative versus liberal, that you get with the Gospels. Uh, we can date them because we have information from outside of the Bible as well as from the book of Acts that meshes with what we have within Paul's letters. And uh, most of them were written in the 50s of the first century, even before the earliest plausible dates for any gospel. And yet, Paul frequently will quote or allude to a teaching from the life of Jesus. He could not have gotten that by asking his friend Luke, can I borrow that scroll that you wrote? Because he hadn't done it yet. It had to have come through the oral tradition. Maybe the most dramatic of those references is in 1 Corinthians 15.3 and following when he says, I passed on to you what was delivered to me as of first importance, an expression that can also, probably should also be translated at the first. And then he gives what reads like a small confession of faith. Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried. 
rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to, and then follow a, a list of all the witnesses to the resurrection, plus 500 more, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Why say that? Unless the point is, if you don't believe me, go ask them. And then as to one untimely born, I, I barely snuck in after the deadline. Um, he appeared also to me. Well, if that's something that Paul learned from the tradition, was taught to him at the first as of first importance, those same synchronisms between Acts and the epistles allow us to date Paul's conversion to no more than two or three years after Jesus' death. That means that when he was in Damascus starting to get explanation from Christian disciples about this amazing experience of Jesus appearing to him and temporarily blinding him on the road to Damascus, they already had, in a kind of fixed confessional form, here are the most important things to teach to a new convert. And a world without internet or fast trains, um, it didn't become consolidated in Damascus unless it had originated in Jerusalem sometime earlier and begun to spread. So at the latest, within one to two years of Jesus' death, as witnessed by Paul's letters, one of the letters whose authenticity is not doubted by anybody in the New Testament scholarly world, is the conviction that Jesus died for our sins and rose bodily from the grave and was seen by, as my daughters used to say, a whole heck load of people. This cannot be explained as a late evolving legend based on Greco-Roman deities or ideas that Judaism hadn't even yet confronted at this stage. Something revolutionary and instantaneously transforming happened to the 120 people who within 50 days of Jesus' death began proclaiming that he was alive from the dead. In some ways, that's the most powerful argument of all, I think. Hmm. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, this was good. This was great. And if, uh, if you're listening right now and you live around Denver, in Denver, we'd love to have Dr. Blomberg back at the pub. Um, it, was a, it was a great time at Grandma's house. So last question, Chicago Cubs or Kansas City Royals, who is going to win the World Series this year? Probably neither. <laughs> Wait, I actually have one more question. Oh man, come on! No, no, it's not. It's not. It's not related to the topic. It's it's something that I've been wanting to to, to ask um, people that we interview, just because it's interesting to ask. And it's what are you reading nowadays? Too many student papers. Oh, <laughs> hey, you know, I was hoping any, like uh, any good ones. I mean, we know uh, Ryan got a B. Speaking on of, paper. I was gonna say absolutely eighty six. Eighty six. I read a lot of good papers. I uh, am currently working on a, a book uh, of New Testament theology, so I'm reading a lot of things about what the different New Testament writers thought were the most important themes related to the Christian faith and creating my own synthesis, and my wife and I for recreation, because we're, we're nerds, uh, either online or live, uh, like to play word games, whether it's Scrabble or Boggle or Words with Friends or uh, Perquacky, or uh, that probably dates me if anybody out there has even heard of that. Nope. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, now we know Dr. Blomberg is, is on Words with Friends, so email him and ask for his username if you ever want to battle it out. 
but you better introduce yourself or I'll just ignore you. <laughs> Which is what I do with all friend requests on Facebook for anybody I don't know. If they don't even take the time to write me and tell me who they are, then with 1,500 or so people already, who knows who's got a fake personality out there, I need to... I need a little more than just a request. That's some good wisdom right there for Facebook. <laughs> Facebook wisdom, Dr. Block. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, cheers, everybody. Good times.